So I'm calling today's word, wake-up call. There are two parables describing marriage feasts in the Gospel of Matthew. And they're about the kingdom of heaven and of God's relationship to his church. And they both give us a picture of the end-time return of Jesus to be joined to his bride. So in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 2, there's the parable of the king arranging a wedding for his son. We read about this arrangement. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now here the attention is upon the guests who were invited and their various reasons for not attending, which dishonoured the king. But there's nothing mentioned here about the bride or the bridesmaids. The bridegroom is mentioned here implicitly in the son of the king. But in this story, the king finally sends his servants out into the highways and byways to compel people to come because he wants that feast to be celebrated and well attended in his house. He wants the house full. The next parable in Matthew chapter 25 is of the wise and foolish bridesmaids. And that's more focused upon the bride and the bridegroom and the bridesmaids. The bridegroom is Jesus and the bride is the church. And the attention is upon the readiness of those who have roles to perform in their attendance of the marriage feast, such as the bridesmaids. And today I want to look mainly at the parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids, which starts off by saying, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps in order to go out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and the word in the original language there is moros, which is actually where we get the word moron from. <laughs> Look it up in the dictionary. It means neglectful, unmindful. And five were wise, phronemos, which means they've got their head on the right way, thoughtful and mindful. Now the background to both of these parables is the Jewish marriage customs in Bible times. And they give us an insight into the order of certain arrangements, such as who sends out the invitations and to whom are the invitations sent, and the question of who determines what the wedding date shall be. There are various obligations and expectations, and if these are not observed properly, a person's honour could be at stake. The usual arrangement was that both families would arrange for a young couple to become betrothed for about a year, and they would work together, the families, on the future plans and financial arrangements for all the parties involved. When the marriage occurred around a year later, the bridegroom and the bride wouldn't organise their own future household. They wouldn't have arrangements made for that because the bride would join the bridegroom's family household after the marriage. And after the initial betrothal, which was around about a year, the bridegroom would live in his father's house for that period of time and prepare a bridal chamber he goes to prepare a place. <laughs> and it's like an add-on apartment 
for he and his bride to live in for some time into the future, and they can make other arrangements. There was some flexibility regarding the time for the bridegroom to prepare this new place for he and his bride, so there was no definite wedding date. And when the place was complete, the groom would come to get his bride and bring her home for the wedding and the wedding feast. The bride wouldn't know the day or the hour of her husband-to-be's return. And the groom's arrival was usually suddenly announced with a trumpet call and a shout. So the bride at least had some forewarning, but she had to take part in a ritual cleansing and then come along to the smaller family ceremony, the wedding, which was attended by a select few. Then after the family ceremony, the couple would attend a much more lavish wedding feast celebrated in their honour, which included a much larger crowd. And the servants of the bridegroom's father would send out invitations to the guests to come to the larger wedding feast celebration. And this is why the parables concerning wedding feasts always involve some confusion over the guests, often being caught having to put off other arrangements in order to honour the hosts of the wedding feast. And this is a test for the guests and their order of priorities and loyalties. And they often had other matters of importance and self-interest to attend to. The uncertainty of the timing of the event all depended upon how long it took the bridegroom to prepare a place for his bride. No one knew the day or the hour. That's what God's people live with. And the smoothness of the process of the wedding and the feast depended upon how ready everybody was when the bridegroom announced that he was ready. Some were extremely mindful of all the proceedings, while others were unmindful or indifferent. The main point of these stories is who was mindful and who was unmindful during the time of delay. Let me read that scripture to you about the bridesmaids. Matthew 25, 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps in order to go out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, moros, and five were wise, phronimos, Unmindful, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. All of them. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready, and the word in the Greek there means well prepared, and they were the ones that had the oil in their lamps, they went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other bridesmaids came along saying, Lord, open up to us. But he said to them, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. He knew them all right, but there was not a relational knowing of one another that had developed because of their 
neglect. And that passage of scripture finishes by saying, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So I'm calling this wake-up call. We've said that these parables are about Jesus and the church. So I have some questions. First one is, is everybody at the wedding feast part of the church? Well, the answer is yes. It's clearly the case that that was the father wanting everyone to come to the wedding feast, and that's his people. But there are very many people who make up the church that are at different levels of commitment and relationship to God. God knows where his church is somewhere amongst all those that do church, and there's millions and millions that do church, because doing church is not necessarily being church. It's not for me to judge, but that is what you might call a, a maxim. It's just like a, it's a reality. This prompts another question. If the Bible says that the bride of Christ is the church, then what's the difference between the bride and the bridesmaids and the other guest? as aren't they also the church? Again, the answer is yes. The bride is the church, but there are people also at different levels of intimate relationship with Jesus. And the bride company of the church exists invisibly here and there as ones who would be in the most intimate relationship with him. The Father is very accepting and merciful to all of us who believe in his Son and are on our journey of faith. And all we can say is the grace of God allows people to make their own choices in their relationship priorities. It's there. Come as close as you like, but we make the choice. Only God knows the heart of each one, and we cannot assume or presume in these matters about where everything is at right now and where they will be one day. There's a lot of journeys. However, we can observe that the Bible describes different categories of people involved in these wedding feast stories. The two most important ones are the bride and the bridegroom. And they only have eyes for one another and, and minds and feelings for one another, anticipating a life of being together as one forever. This speaks of Jesus coming back for his bride, which is part of the church. Then we have the bridegroom's father, who's concerned for the honour and fulfilment of his son's life and future. And that speaks of Father God for his son. The bride's parents, they're in the picture, and they're concerned that the bride will be prepared and ready and bring beauty and glory to this very special occasion. This speaks to us of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in preparing us to be his bride, wherever that heart of loving response is. The interesting thing about the bridesmaids, and this is what intrigued me, why is this story about bridesmaids? One interesting thing, firstly, is that they all became drowsy and slept because of the, of the bridegroom's delay. It wasn't like some were always awake, they all slept, which is what happens when things just go on and on. 
for centuries or for a lifetime. That's why I'm calling this word wake-up call. Some were more diligent than others in being ready by having oil in their lamps, which speaks to us of being filled with the Holy Spirit and awake and alive to his activity within. At least when the call came, they woke up and they were alive straight away with the Holy Spirit. The unmindful bridesmaids had indeed experienced the work of the Holy Spirit because they wouldn't have lamps otherwise, but they'd been distracted and neglected the work of the Holy Spirit alive in them and run out of oil. In those times, the bridesmaids were chosen and the ones that were chosen knew that they too would without doubt be brides one day. That's what the bridesmaids were for. So that in the King James Version, it calls them the five wise and five foolish virgins. So they were there as the bridesmaids and this was like a picture of this is how life goes on. Here's the bride, here's the bridegroom. And you ladies here, your bridesmaids, your day will come. So keep your hopes up. And it always did come in those days in the Jewish custom. The families made sure of that. So they had a sure hope and expectation. We could speculate, I'm going to use that word a little bit today, that this progression from bridesmaid to bride is there for every one of us, even if it doesn't occur within our lifespan. I might be a bridesmaid. I mean, I'd be happy to be a bridesmaid <laughs> as long as I'm getting there. So it may not occur within our lifespan, but we might consider that in the age to come, the church age has a little more to come, even after the Lord comes back. In that age, the Holy Spirit could perhaps cause our love to be completed in the Father's love for us, so that we too will be as the bride in perfect oneness with his Son. And I'll talk about that age to come in a moment, but in regards to the bridesmaids, because that's what this parable is about, there is something imminent, that something is developing, and that's going to be completed. Otherwise, the parable is not worth talking about. Because that's the hinge, the bridesmaids. They're going to become brides. Who? Well, a lot of who. I want to read in 1 John 3, verse 2. We are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we'll see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now that word, when he appears, is phanerao, which means to know what has been hidden or unknown, to manifest, whether by words or deeds or in any other way. So there's an expectancy in the bridesmaids. Huh? Whenever that's going to be and however God's going to do it, and, and as a bridesmaid, I know my day will come and, and God puts that in there to allow that hope and expectation to be there. I don't know how he's going to do it. As I said, I haven't got all the answers, but I've got some questions. And they're relevant because the parables are telling us a story of the, of the Lord coming for his bride and about being ready and purified 
and then about something else happening. So as for the many other guests mentioned in the first parable, that was Matthew chapter 22, verse 2, the Bible reveals that this was a test for their order of priorities. That was all the guests that had excuses not to come. Their loyalties were tested in honouring the son's father. And when we consider how the father's heart was so determined to fill his house at all costs, he, he got disappointed, he got upset. There were some people that he thought, well, I always thought you honoured me. Not too busy. I was a very important person. Uh, sorry, I've got other things to do, maybe very religious things to do. So, in his determination, he sent the servants to get people from the highways and the byways, such as beggars that maybe slept under bridges, <laughs> fill the house up. So this prompts another question for further speculation. Could there be people that we know who have not responded to the gospel for a multitude of reasons and whose hearts maybe have pondered the mystery of God with doubt or improbability or even the denial of a wounded and painful heart and whom the Father sees as his children who need more time in an age to come so that their heart response to his love can be completed just like the bridesmaids. Somehow the bridesmaids are the hinge. They're the ones that give some meaning to the fact that you're ready and you will be a bride, but not yet. Well, okay, well, we'll stand in behind them. The rest of us. Only God knows. These two parables are things that have been put in the Bible. I don't have all the answers for, but I do have some questions and some speculations, but only God knows. But to join the dots a little more boldly, I'll add this. The final thing God did when he created the world on the sixth and final day of his creation was to fashion a bride, Eve, for his son, Adam, out of his son, Adam. And on the seventh day, he rested in order to enjoy the fullness of fellowship with his sons and daughters-to-be with this wonderful marriage. But oops, something went wrong. And now for another question. If God's final work in the final days of this present kingdom age will be to fashion a bride for his son, what will be the nature of the next kingdom age called the millennium that the scriptures speak about at length? This 1,000 year reign of Christ upon the earth during which time Satan is bound. There's a question. I say that because I've got Many scriptures, Revelation 20, Timothy chapter 2, Romans 16, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 11, Micah chapter 4, and there are many, many others that speak about this reign and of God's people reigning, ruling and reigning with him and Satan being bound. That might have already happened. If it has, I haven't seen it. He's around, Satan. And we are not here on this earth to try and make Christians run the government and have the, the, the rule of the righteous, we're here waiting for the Lord to get us into the place where we see him ruling and reigning. And we're with him. Now, could this be a time of opportunity for the completion of the love response in the hearts of multitudes of people, Christians and Jews? In fact, all of Israel will be saved, the Bible says. I believe they'll have a very significant part to play in the reign of Jesus over the earth for a thousand years.
Something has to be perfected in people's oneness with the bridegroom, <coughs> Jesus. Today, I just have to leave these questions open for your consideration. I'll address them further in the new year, the Lord willing. Have your questions and comments ready. It fills me with hope. And I see mysteries tied up in those two parables. But in both parables, a, a peculiar thing happens. It gives rise to further speculation and questions, which I'd like to go into at greater length at some time, but not today. Because some of them have the door closed on, closed on them at the last moment. The five unmindful bridesmaids were left outside and in the other parable a man was put out into outer darkness for not having a wedding garment. There's no explanation given about this outer place in the parable. But my speculation concerning this in the reading of other scriptures in Revelations chapter 11, chapter 12 and chapter 19 and other scriptures is that this outer place could well be a time of trial and tribulation for a certain time, that some in the church may experience, while those at the feast are given safety and refuge in the presence of the Lord during that time. And there's no way I can or would want to project my thoughts into how that's going to happen. It has something to do with being in the presence of Jesus in some special way that God supernaturally provides refuge. Okay, now... With everything I've said, you might be thinking, well, golly, about 8 million people here on the earth now, how many, how, how big is this wedding going to be? How many guests are going to be there? And I was reading, um, had a report somebody gave me about the population of the world today. They say it has actually got to 8 billion. It doesn't look like it's going to go any further. In fact, it may decline. Lots of reasons for that. Well, that's an interesting kind of little number. Eight billion. That prompts me to say this. In every generation, now, it's not just about now. In every generation, back through the ages, that have lived upon the earth, there's been a wake-up call to what we're here for and what we were born for and what the Father's heart is for his son and for his son's bride and for all who honour and appreciate God's love for us. It has been a long delay. Call it around 2,000 years. And I believe also that when Jesus does return for his bride and the wedding feast is celebrated, that there will be people from down through the ages attending that reunion, wedding feast and marriage that have been awake and alive to the Father's heart for this occasion for his son, right on through the ages, right back. Not just going to be the bunch at the end, even though it's a big bunch by the way the numbers could stack up. Again, I don't know. But I know that those people that have been faithful all that time, you see, this scripture was written a long time ago. And everybody that read it thought, oh yeah, that's me. Can you imagine reading this in the year 450 or something, when St. Augustine was writing to the church? And you'd be thinking, well, it's probably going to be in about 25 years' time. The world is in a terrible place. There'd be no concept that there'd be something like a thousand year something happening. You'd have to wait for many, 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 many more years because a thousand years hadn't passed and nobody would really know what to make of many of those scriptures. 
So there have been people that have been faithful, faithful to respond to this message of Jesus and his bride. Now, Paul dwelt thoroughly on the relational aspect of Christ and his bride when he spoke of presenting his bride as having her soul cleansed by his word and having a heart of inner beauty that was without spot and blemish. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendour. And there's your bride, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now Paul was reading that scripture in the present tense to people and saying, this is you, church. Paul was always urging the church to awaken and to reawaken into a conscious awareness of the nearness of God with us at all times. And not to allow the difficulties and distractions of the world to weary us into that spiritual slumber. And that slumber is around, there is no doubt about that. But Paul saw it around then. It's a human thing. In Romans 13 verse 11 he says, You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. In other words, everything is about now. He didn't really prophesy the future. He did say some things later in Thessalonians about, but oh, there's got to come a great falling away first. He didn't say that it could be thousands, thousands well, hundreds and hundreds of years of falling away. He didn't say that. And then the, the lawless one will, will, will come. That was all just something that God gave to him and he spoke the words, but he didn't give us any explanation. But he saw the uncertainties of the future and he saw the fatigue of past struggles in the people that had allowed a lethargy of spirit to take over their souls. And he wrote to them, said, come on, you've been through it. Now, wake up. He had them in his care. He didn't want them to lose out. He saw the goal. And he went to great lengths to remind them to live in the present moment, not in the vagaries of time that had been wasted or lost or anxious about the fact that time was running out. <laughs> Does that for everybody. But it is time. It is Kairos time. He pressed upon them. Take a hold of the available grace that abounded towards them. If only they would trust and believe Paul saw himself as co-labouring and co-operating with God on their behalf and he stirs them to be of a similar disposition, to work together with God and for God. He says, I heard you at the right time and I came to give you salvation, but be aware that the time is right now for your grace to fully cooperate in this day of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Act now, Paul urges. This is the acceptable time. It's the only time to do it. It's not only having had salvation, come to you once, and that's all there is to it, but it's time for your salvation to live in you and come out of you from a conscious kingdom life within you. He was saying, God hasn't stopped labouring, but have you stopped co-labouring? There's a rest to come, and we can be in our rest of faith now. But how do we cooperate and co-labour? I want to say this finally. We occupy the now and only moment of grace in his presence 
which is to us a place of safety and refuge. To do this, we need to stop, be still, and engage our minds to focus upon his life, actively streaming its goodness towards us. That's number one for your phronemos, for your mindfulness. We then trust and fully believe that God is working his kingdom of heaven life into our earthly lives and circumstances to bring them into the order of his heavenly life. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. He's never ceasing to do that. But when you're conscious of it, you actually know that you're a part of it. And your will gets overcome by grace and the grace starts to give you the biggest yes you've ever found in your life. Yes, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Did I say that? That's the grace of God. We trust and believe that God is redeeming and restoring our past experiences of loss and disorder in our lives into a thankful, now present place of peace and order. And that then gives us a new hope as we look forward to an ongoing kingdom-ordered life for our future in this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.